the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. God knit within us not just the capacity, but the desire to connect and commune with Him. And what happens is, if we don't turn to Him and worship Him for who He is, if we don't connect and commune with God, the Creator of the universe, then what we will end up doing is deferring that to something or something else, and we will worship that something or that someone else to satisfy the innate need we have to worship. Just like the Israelites got caught up in the practices of worshiping of other gods, Christians can get caught up in worshiping other gods too. You might not be physically praying or bowing down to an idol, but what are you spending more time on and ignoring God? In today's message, Pastor Gary will explain that putting the pleasures of this world above God is just as offensive to him as people who openly worship other gods. Be careful not to allow things to compete with the devotion that you should only have toward God. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Zephaniah as he begins his message, When God Sings. Here we are today, the book of Zephaniah. If you have your Bibles open to chapter 1 of Zephaniah, we are making our way through the Old Testament on our way into the New Testament from cover to cover. And the last 12 books of the Old Testament are known as the Minor Prophets. Again, not because these prophets are less important, but because generally their writing is shorter. And Zephaniah is no exception, only three chapters. And, uh, and so he is number nine out of the 12 minor prophets. And as a little bit of an intro to Zephaniah, we actually know more about him than we do much of the other prophets, because in chapter one, verse one, as he writes, he gives us insight into his own heritage. He goes back four generations. And so we know a little bit about his family line. And so for those of you note takers, here's what we understand about the ministry of Zephaniah. He tells us in the first verse of chapter 1 that he is the great-great-grandson of King Hezekiah. So he has a royal heritage. His name in Hebrew is pronounced Zephaniah. Zephaniah is from two Hebrew words, Zephan, meaning hide, to hide, and Yah, at at the end of his name, the suffix is for Yahweh. So his name means the Lord hides, Yahweh hides. And we'll talk more about his name when we get into our study a little bit further. And scholars believe that he prophesies um, around 630 B.C. 
to the southern kingdom of Judah, which is that part is clear, but the timeline is um, based on the fact that he tells us in chapter 1, verse 1, that he ministers during the reign of King Josiah, who was king of Judah, the southern province of Israel, with Jerusalem as the capital city. And Josiah reigned from the year 640 to 609 B.C. And so it's believed that uh, Zephaniah ministered in the early part of his reign uh, and throughout his reign. And so we'll see it here from chapter 1, verse 1. I'm going to read the first three verses of chapter 1, and then we'll also read the first three verses of chapter 2. But follow along in your Bibles if you have it open there. Now, Zephaniah 1, verse 1 says, The word of the Lord which came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi. So his dad was a little soft. He wasn't really (laughs) very stern disciplinarian. He was just, he was Cushy. The son of Gedaliah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah, in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah. I will utterly consume everything from the face of the land, says the Lord. I will consume man and beast. I will consume the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, and the stumbling blocks along with the wicked. I will cut off man from the face of the land says the Lord. Let's pause there, go to chapter 2. Look at the first three verses of chapter 2. Verse 1, gather yourselves together, yes, gather together, O undesirable nation, before the decree is issued or the day passes like chaff, before the Lord's fierce anger comes upon you, before the day of the Lord's anger comes upon you, seek the Lord, all you meek of the earth, who have upheld his justice, Seek righteousness, seek humility. It may be that you will be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. One of the most often repeated phrases in the book of Zephaniah, in fact, more than any other book of the Old Testament, is the phrase, the day of the Lord. Nineteen times he uses that phrase. He's speaking of the day of God's wrath, the day of God's anger. Why is God so angry? We'll talk about it as we unpack this book together. When we open up the book of Zephaniah here, it's an interesting time in Judah's history. Uh, The Bible tells us here in chapter 1, verse 1, that the king at this particular time is a guy by the name of Josiah, and this is the time during which uh, Zephaniah is called as a prophet to minister. So uh, let me talk a little bit about King Josiah first so that you understand the backdrop to this story and why Zephaniah was inserted at this particular time in history. So uh, Josiah became king of Judah when he was just eight years of age. His father before him, King Ammon, had been assassinated. And so after the assassination of his dad, here he is eight years old, they instantly make him king. That's the way it worked back in the day. The son succeeded the father, typically. And so Josiah finds himself as king of the most powerful uh, kingdom on earth at this time, uh, at the age of eight. You know, I mean, the real crown didn't even fit him. It was, it was too big for his little head. They had to run out to Party City and get a little paper hat for him. I want you to imagine trying to, you know, rule what would life be like if you're a king at the age of eight. I mean, try to imagine that. Unlimited TV, right? You're on your iPhone and nobody's going to tell you to get off. You, you, you know, you're, you, you have all control over everything of your schedule. You, bedtime is whenever you jolly want it to be. You're eight, and you're king. You're eating ice cream and lucky charms. It's a magically delicious life. 
And so here you are, eight years old. But the Bible tells us that Josiah was one of the few good kings in all of the history of Judah. When the nation of Israel had civil war and they divided, you have kings to the north in the nation of Israel, kings to the south in the nation of Judah. There was not a single good king in the north, not a single one recorded in Scripture. There were a couple of good ones in Judah to the south, and Josiah is one of them. And the Bible says that when Josiah, in the eighth year of his reign, in other words, when he turned 16 years of age, that the Bible says he began to seek the Lord for himself. As this teenager, he just begins to press into God and seek, and seek the Lord. The Bible then says at the age of 20, he gets convicted about idolatry in the land as a result, why? Of seeking the Lord. So when he's 16, he seeks the Lord. When he's 20, he removes idols and idolatry from the land of Judah. And then the Bible says when he's 26 years of age, he renovates the temple. The temple had been closed. Nobody was going in making sacrifices, worshiping God for years before Josiah. His father, his grandfather was Manasseh. He was a wicked guy. His father was wicked too. That's why he got assassinated. So Josiah comes from a line, uh, at least his father and his grandfather, that were pretty wicked men. And thus, they weren't worshiping God. The temple of God had been closed. Josiah, at the age of 26, says, well, I'm going to open up the temple. When they do, they discover something that had been hidden for years, the book of the law. They hadn't been reading scripture. They hadn't been taking out the scriptures and reading what God says. And so Josiah then is given the book of the law. Look what we found in the temple in the process of restoring the temple. They dust it off. Josiah sees that it as the word of God. And he implements spiritual reform throughout the land of Judah. It's a remarkable story when you think about it. And if you forget anything else I have to say today, please remember this much from Josiah's life. Because here's what happened. At 16, he sought the Lord. At 20, he removed idols. At 26, he opened up the Word of God. Those three things became the recipe for a life that is after the heart of God. When you seek God, get rid of idols in your life, and open up the Bible... Man, your relationship with God becomes strong. And this is what happened with Josiah. He sought the Lord, he removed idols, and he opened up the Bible. And as a result, he begins to implement sweeping reforms spiritually among the land of Judah. This is the time in which God sends Zephaniah. God says to Zephaniah, I want you to come at this time as a prophet of mine, and I want you to go about rebuking the people for their sin and helping to implement the reform that Josiah is bringing. So you have a godly king, Josiah, you have a godly prophet, Zephaniah, and between the two of them, there's going to be this wonderful spiritual sweeping reform throughout the land of Judah. There are two primary sins that Zephaniah addresses when he is sent by God to speak to the people of Judah. And the two primary sins are these, idolatry and complacency. Idolatry and complacency. We'll start first with idolatry. If you look in your Bibles here at chapter 1, verse 4, God says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. I will cut off every trace of Baal from this place, circle Baal, the names of the idolatrous priests, note that, with the pagan priests, verse 5, those who worship the host of heaven on the housetops, 
Those who worship and swear oaths by the Lord, but who also swear by Milcom. Milcom, by the way, is another name for Molech. He's better known by Molech, another god, false god. Those who have turned back from following the Lord and have not sought the Lord nor inquired of him. So God through Zephaniah first addresses the problem of idolatry in the land, and he points out the worship of Baal there in verse 4, more properly pronounced Baal. Baal was the principal god of the Canaanites, the ancient people who preceded the Israelites in the land there that God had given to the Jewish people. Baal just simply in a Semitic language meant Lord or Master, and so they would call their gods Baal, Baal, And the Israelites, the Jewish people, had adopted these false gods of the neighboring nations. They got caught up in idolatry. In addition to the worship of Baal, they also were worshiping Molech here, or or Milcom in verse verse 5. He was the national god of the Ammonites. And and, uh, we've talked about Molech before. The worship of Molech involved child sacrifice. And so the, the Jewish people were even sacrificing their children in the worship of Molech. So this is not just some passing little, you know, a season that they were going through where they were once in a while, you know, worshiping the wrong gods. I mean, idolatry plagued the Jewish people for centuries where, where they forsook the worship of the true and living God and instead worshiped these gods made out of wood, stone, and metal. And they would bow down to these gods, and they would worship these gods. It was an age-old problem of the Jewish people for centuries. And they they began to to honor and worship and deify inanimate objects. They would prop their little gods up in the corner of their houses, and and they would bow down to them. Uh, These were gods that they would pray to, but gods who would never answer them. These are gods who, who they would turn to to seek aid from, who would never help them. Uh, these were mute gods. They, they, were, they were deaf gods. They were, they were objects. They, they would try to love these gods, but these gods would never love them back because they weren't real. And as foolish as this seems to us, just the whole idea of carving little statues, little images, bowing down to these things, thinking that these little things are going to help them and save them and heal them, as foolish as this seems to us, it just simply illustrates the innate need that every human being has to worship someone or something greater than himself or herself. Because we were created in the image and likeness of God, God knit within us Not just the capacity, but the desire to connect and commune with him. And what happens is, if we don't turn to him and worship him for who he is, if we don't connect and commune with God, the creator of the universe, then what we will end up doing is deferring that to something or something else, and we will worship that something or that someone else to satisfy the innate need we have to worship. This is what God has placed within the heart of human beings. But because, again, if we don't worship the true and living God, we will turn to something else or someone else because of this innate need we have to worship. That's why, quite honestly, you know, we see an aspect of this kind of thing happening in in our world today where, where we have somewhat made a God out of the earth. It's pantheism. It's been around forever. All this preoccupation with the environment has given the earth a godlike status where nature and trees are worshipped and Greta Thunberg is the goddess of the earth. 
Have you seen this girl? Greta Thunberg, Google her if you haven't heard of her. They put her on the cover of Time magazine as person of the year. Why? She's a 16-year-old kid who's talking about the environment, and, and you know, she, she's from Sweden, and she's kind of lecturing environmentalists, saying you're not really true environmentalists, you know, and, and you know, you're killing the earth and the planet and all this kind of stuff. So that's what's happening. We, we, we've got this kind of godlike status that we've attached to the earth and to the environment. Now, l- let me just hasten to add, listen, if you personally want to do things that help the environment, okay, you know, it, it's God's green earth. I get that. I get that. What I'm talking about is the bigger picture of this move. There's an environmental movement. And the movement is trying to ascribe godlike status to the earth. Let, let me illustrate it like this. Just this week, a lawsuit was filed in federal court against the Trump administration by three environmental organizations on the basis of, because in their opinion, quote, the Trump administration has failed to protect the green sea turtle habitat in South Florida. So they're suing the federal government right now, just happened last week, suing the federal government for not protecting the green sea turtle habitat in South Florida. All the while... Listen to me on this. All the while, some of those same people will sit on their hands during Trump's State of the Union address and not applaud when he talks about outlawing late-term abortion and preserving life in the womb. Why is that? It is a terrible day when the green sea turtle has more favored status than a baby in the womb. Are you hearing me on this? And so my point is, when environment and created things are cherished above the creator and what God determines is valuable in terms of like life, when you see this imbalance, it's this idolizing, idolizing, making an idol out of something that should not be idolized. Idolatry is all around us. Idolatry is all around us. And even some world religions still bow down to carved images. I had a couple, uh, a couple of weeks ago come up to me between services in the atrium uh, from India. Uh, both believers, b- both love Jesus. But she was telling me about how her family um, still is in Hinduism and how her family still bows down and worships idols, just objects. Now, Hindus would, strictly speaking, they would say that they do not worship the idols themselves, but what they believe to be the presence of God through the idols. That doesn't make it any better. I'm just, I'm just trying to distinguish what they would say. And in fact, if you go to hinduismtoday.com, they would say, this says this right on their website, quote, Hindus do not worship a stone or metal idol as God. We worship God through the image We invoke the presence of God from the higher unseen worlds into the image so that we can commune with him and receive his blessings. Okay, well, that that doesn't clear it up for me. In fact, that makes it even worse because the idea of invoking a spiritual presence from the unseen worlds into an image is not just idolatry, that's demonic idolatry. And so we need to pray for Hindus. We need to love Hindus, but but that's, that's misguided. That is idolatry, uh, any way you, you slice it. Now, of course, in our educated Western world, uh, we would never bow down to some inanimate object that's beneath us. Our form of idolatry is much more sophisticated than that. We buy expensive toys. 
And then we completely ignore God while we devote ourselves to the God of materialism. Or we seek addictive pleasure with the God of sex or alcohol or drugs. Or our time is consumed by the God of technology. Right? Look on the back of your phones. It's an apple with a bite taken out of it. Any coincidence? I don't think so. We even tend to make people gods. We idolize people. Idolatry is in the heart of every one of us at some level, competing with God for our time, attention, love, and devotion. It might be a more sophisticated form of idolatry, but please hear me on this. It is no less offensive to God than the idolatry of other world religions. Paul said in Colossians 3, 5 that covetousness is Idolatry. Did you know that when you lust after covet, when you want what someone else has, that that's called idolatry in the Bible? Why? Because covetousness drains our contentment in Christ. Whenever we are looking at what we don't have, wishing to have what someone else has, it robs us of our contentment in Christ. It's idolatry. It's covetousness. Paul simply put it this way in 1 Corinthians 10, 14. He said, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. So this is a New Testament thing, not just Old Testament. In fact, John the Apostle would write in 1 John 5, 21, keep yourselves from idols. So we have to be very careful. What are the things that compete in our hearts for affection and devotion that should be unto the Lord that have captured our own hearts instead? Now, I've talked about idolatry often through our study through the Bible because it's all through the Bible, so how can you avoid the topic? But I had somebody come up to me one time when I was talking on the subject of idolatry between services. It, 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 I, it was tongue-in-cheek, I know, but the person came up to me and they said, uh, you know, all this talk about idolatry, uh, and you point out different things that are idols, but I have yet to hear you talk about the idolatry of Krispy Kreme. Mm-hmm. Because if you're new to Cornerstone, I love Krispy Kreme. And so this person was like, you know, I noticed you never have Krispy Kreme on the list. I said, here's the reason why. You need to understand. It's not an idol. Because I don't know anybody who destroys an idol. (laughs) And if you bring me a box of those little idols, I will destroy every single one of them within minutes. It's not an idol. Because I destroy them. Number two is complacency. Idolatry, complacency. Look in your Bibles, chapter 1, verse 12. And it shall come to pass at that time that I will search Jerusalem with lamps. Look at how God is going to much effort to to seek out. And punish the men who are settled in complacency, who say in their heart, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil. So complacency is mentioned there in verse 12. Circle that word in your Bibles. Zephaniah calls out this lazy, apathetic attitude toward God among God's people. They are detached. They are unconcerned. They are disengaged. And because of that, they justify it because they think that's the way God is. That's why they say there at the end of verse 12, well, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do evil. You know, God, God's not concerned about anything either. Why should we be? In the NIV, it says the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. So that's how they would justify it in their own lives. Well, God's not going to do anything about anything, so why should we? Why should we care about spiritual things? Why should we care about communing with God, worshiping Him, honoring Him, living for Him? And so they were complacent. They had checked out spiritually. They didn't care about their walk with God. They were lazy, opulent, idle, 
and indifferent. The warnings and prophecies found in the Minor Prophet books can be intense, but they remind you of one thing. God is patient. He doesn't exact judgment on those who have sinned immediately. Instead, God shows mercy. He gives you ample time to come to Him in repentance, handing the wrongs you've committed over to Him and letting His love restore you. Because of that love for His creation, God sent His only Son to die on the cross in your place, taking your sins with Him. Jesus' death provides you the opportunity at a new life and forgiveness for all your wrongs. Are you ready to come to Jesus in repentance today and receive this grace? We'd like to talk more with you, so please give us a call at 703-771-1500. That's 703-771-1500. We also want to invite you to join us for church at Cornerstone Chapel. We're meeting each Sunday in person at 8.30 and 11.45 a.m., as well as on Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Visit cornerstoneconnection.cc to get all the information you need, along with directions to our campus. If you're not able to be with us in person, we do offer each service online as well. Again, visit cornerstoneconnection.cc to connect. Thanks for tuning in today for Pastor Gary's message. And we hope you'll join us again right here on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know